0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. I am so glad to be back. Uh, last week, um, you had Gordon, which is awesome. He he loves spending time with you guys. Um, it was hard for me Sunday morning, not seeing you. It's just very, uh, it's just what I do. It's what I'm used to. It's what I look forward to every week. And so, uh, and the church I was at, it started an hour later. So I had an hour just to think about how much I missed you guys. Um, and it's true. Unfortunately, you know, I was blessed, um, to be able to worship with my, uh, well, hear my father-in-law preach for the first time and also to, to worship in, um, was it Mandarin? And so I was able to, uh, to worship in Mandarin and, and um, there was English subtitles, um, but after a couple of verses, I, I think, I don't know if they were offended, I think I was singing in Mandarin, but, um, but it was a great experience. I really enjoyed seeing that and it always blesses me whenever I get to you know, preach abroad or in a church that's of a different ethnicity, because you just see like the gospel just goes into all different sorts of corners and cultures and people. And it's, it is, it's just, sometimes we just think about church in our own context, but I just love seeing other people worship through their own culture. And it was just such a joy. But again, I'm so glad to be back here. And so this week, um, middle of the week, I thought I was getting sick. I was a little worried. You know, did I get sick out in Vegas? And so I started sweating like, oh, no, like, I feel so hot right now. Um, what's wrong? And so thankfully, you know, I, I looked at the news on my computer and said, no, it's hot. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't me. And so on Wednesday, March 23rd, we set the record high um, for, for that date, um, which I know it's going to get a lot hotter, and I haven't been through a summer yet, but um, we'll go through that together. You could take me, take my family through that. Um, and so every time, you know, you look at the news, though, when you read these articles about how hot it is, and it's so hot, uh, they, will, they will recommend at the end of it, and don't forget to drink water, like stay hydrated, you know, as if we needed the reminder, but also, I mean, it's, it's true, like we need to drink water, you, ha- you have to have water or you will die, right? Water is essential to life, and so... And then there's even like a water that's essential for eternal life. And that, that's the kind of water we talk about at church, and we're going to talk about and, and today. And so without this water, without this eternal water, it's really scary because you don't die. Right? You don't die. And yet you remain thirsty and tormented forever. And you'll your thirst will never, never be quenched. You'll never find water, and you will never life. And therefore, this eternal water is super important. And it's in that context today that we'll be going through John chapter 7. So John chapter 7, we'll go through the whole chapter. John chapter 7 takes place around this thing called the Feast of Booths, or the Festival of Shelters, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, If at any point I I use different words, all those are interchangeable, right? So it's the Feast of Booths I think we're going to stick to um, today. And it's so interesting in John chapter 7, I love it, kind of plays like a movie in that there's narrative beats to this chapter. It's really easy to follow. You have the Feast of Booths is what is the context, right? It's the setting. And you have before, you have the beginning, you have the middle, and the end. And so we have all these beats built right into this chapter. So uh, before we get into it, let me pray for us. God, you are awesome. Thank you for letting me come back here and worship with your people. Lord, I love this church, Lord, like I know you love it, Lord. So glad to be back. Um, This morning, we we, uh, understand that we need uh, living water that it is essential and uh, in Bakersfield we need no reminders that uh, in this heat that we definitely need to be hydrated lord but let our hearts always be reminded lord of the true hydration and life that we find in you so may you be honored lord and take joy in our worship of you today lord amen all right everybody in John chapter 7 perfect all right so John chapter 7, we're going to start before, before the Feast of Booths takes place. Quite simply put, things are bad. Things are bad. and If you remember, it's been a couple of weeks, I know. But, but chapter 6, right? John chapter 6, man, it's some intense teachings. People don't like what's happening. You know, Jesus feeds 15 to 20,000 people, offers himself as the living bread that brings satisfaction and meaning and eternal life, and he is rejected, right? Because they don't want a spiritual king. They don't want a savior. They want, like, the guy who brings, like, the magical bread, right? That's all they care about. This is an endless bread source. They don't want the, the, the bread of life, right? They just want that cosmic heavenly baker, and so after this, a bunch of people leave, including his disciples, not any of the 12. You know, or I don't think any of the 70, but a lot of people who were disciples of Jesus leave at the end of chapter six. And so chapter seven picks up right there. It's very difficult. This is a very low point. And so it picks up with a conversation between Jesus and his brothers and sisters, and so it's not a good conversation. And mind you, this whole time, uh, I, I, I just assume this as we read all throughout John that people are trying to kill him, right? Just that is always something that there's Pharisees, Jews lurking everywhere at all times, including here. And that's, that's part of why when Jesus feels frustrated and is fleeing and going places, it's because that shadow is following him everywhere. So let's start by reading verses one through seven. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so it's really sad. What's happening here is that Jesus' own brothers, and I do believe in the Greek that it says sisters here as well, they don't believe he is who he says he is right? And so they've been privy to everything he's done and said, like healing this guy who couldn't move for for 38 years, turning this kid's Lunchable into a meal for 20,000. You know, all this has happened and they still don't believe him. And so they're encouraging him. And so it's, well, it sounds like an encouragement. You should go reveal yourself to everybody. But John is saying here, because John knows what's really happening, they want Jesus to be pointed out as a fraud. When Jesus shows up, he's going to be caught. So they think. If he shows up and presents himself, that's it. He's done for, right? You know, our, our half-brother can stop talking about how he's God, right? And, and to be fair, um, we have to consider that. You know, I don't know if you have any half-siblings, or even if you don't. Imagine if one of them said they were God. And so little sympathy for them. This must be very hard for them that one of their siblings, you know, might be God. I mean, we know who he is, but... <clears throat> And so then we read in verses eight and nine, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And so Jesus is essentially saying, of course you guys are excited to go. Nobody's trying to kill you guys. Of course you want to go, but he is not going to go yet, right? And so there's a lot of controversy and people will point to this verse and say, Well, isn't Jesus sinning here? Because, spoiler alert, like in five minutes, we're going to realize that Jesus is going to end up at this feast. And so didn't he just tell them that he's not going? So is he lying, right? And, And the answer is no. It says his time has not fully come. And so he's not feeling it. He's just saying, yeah, I'm not feeling it right now. Now is not the time for me to go. So he's not saying he's not going to go. He said, now is not the time for me to go. But the Jews are counting on him being there, right? As soon as Jesus shows up, they're going to arrest him and they are going to try to kill him. He knows that. So with that in mind, he's like, nope, not you guys go. I'll, I'll stay here. And so we get to the beginning of the feast. And so the feast, the feast begins in verses 10 through 13, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, nobody spoke openly of him. And so this whole giant festival there's all the, this murmuring and muttering. You could probably hear it in the crowd, the name Jesus, right? You can't really hear it, but it's like, oh, this Jesus guy, he's really cool, he's really awesome. No, he's not, he's, he's just, he's a lunatic, right? But nobody's actually saying anything. Everybody's just muttering and, and whispering because they're afraid, again, because of the shadow you know, of this force of these Jews who want to kill Jesus. And these officers, you know, we don't know how many there is, but they're probably everywhere looking. And so nobody wants to be caught up in this. Nobody wants to be questioned. So even people who, who do believe that Jesus you know, is the prophet, they're not speaking up loudly. And so Jesus at this point says, now, Now is the time to go. We don't know how much time passes, but we just know after his family leaves. And so after his family leaves, he's like, okay, now it's time, right? So in my head, I like to think it's like right afterwards, just, so he goes and he's gonna go incognito, right? They know what his family looks like. They know what the disciples look like. Jesus goes by himself. No one's gonna know if if he has a hood on or anything, nobody's gonna be able to pick him out of a crowd. So he goes to the feast of booths on his terms, which leads to a really good question. What is, what is the feast of booths? You know, what is, what is this about? You know, and I, I, I thought about it. I don't think there's anything in our culture that's equivalent to this. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I watched a documentary on Woodstock a couple days ago. Uh, <clears throat> imagine that, you know, Lollapalooza, the Super Bowl, but also church, right? So all these things going on together, um, like the Jewish festivals were, I mean, just super, super exciting parties. And so this feast, that's introduced in Leviticus 23 to point out and to remind the people how God delivered them out of Egypt. And so they set up, they camp, right? They go camping and they set up these booths. And so there's tens of thousands of booths, like, um, like tents set up. You know, a lot of them didn't have roofs or a lot of them had very thin covering on top so you could see the stars at night so they could be reminded of, of their ancestors who were in the wilderness. So there's thousands of these booths all night long. And then there's the daily rituals, right? The daily rituals every day during this, the temple of Herod. Everybody would go to the temple of Herod, like multitudes of people, Meet up with the priests, and everybody would bring stuff in their hands. So, in their left hand, fruit, typically citrus, to remind the people God brought us into the Promised Land. He sustained us. Um, he gave us sustenance and, and things that are sweet. And in their right hand, the tree branches, like palm and myrtle, you know, which pointed to the fact that they were in the wilderness for forty years, right? <clears throat> And so, and this is the crazy part. So they meet up with the priest. They got, you know, their fruit and, and, and then their trees. They meet up with the priests, and then they go for a march. They go for a march and they are, they are singing. They are singing psalms. They are singing songs. And so I, I can't even imagine thousands, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people marching, waving palms and singing psalms, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. It's intense. And they arrive eventually at the pool of Siloam and the priest would dip a picture, pitcher in the water to draw water. And he would recite this. And this is so key, I think, to this whole chapter. What they would recite was Isaiah 12, three. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Like they knew that that's what this is all about. Can you imagine that, right? Saying this verse, And so then from there, they march back to the temple and they come through the water gate to the temple and then they start blowing horns. So on top of everything else, you have like ska music playing or maybe like New Orleans, like everybody's jumping and dancing and waving stuff and singing songs, right? This incredible, this incredible feast. And then the priest will go around the altar and then ascend to the highest point of the temple, usually something that was built for that festival and he would pour out the water for everybody to see. And that was the climax of that day. And they did this every single day. And so the reason they did this, why pour out water? Well, because it harkens back to uh, the verse that that we read this morning, Exodus 17, uh, six, which I don't think we have a slide for, but um, that the rock was struck in the desert and all this water came out. And so by pouring out the water, it's showing God's gonna provide for us. God is gonna provide for us wells of water, even in in life's hardest moments, even in the desert, this water will come out of the rock. And so this happens three or four times and it brings us to the middle of the feast. So now we're in the middle. And so we have uh, verses 14 through 18. And so where is Jesus now? Where is he at? We know he's a step behind everybody else. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. So Jesus has now made his way into the temple undetected, right? But he, of course, he ends up in the temple. And it's interesting that just like in our society, I think a lot, he, his credentials get questioned, right? Not, nobody asked, is this guy right about anything he's preaching about? It's like, where did this guy go to school? You know, I mean, so you have these Pharisees, right? Everything is about education. It's like, this guy's never studied. Like, we can't possibly listen to him. He's not qualified, to which Jesus says, well, the school I went to, you know, it's, it was it's from God, right? All knowledge is God's knowledge. And therefore, Jesus has all knowledge. And the Pharisees should know this because if they were listening to what he said, instead of worrying about where he went to school, man, they would have been on their knees, right? They would have understood who he was, but they didn't. They were just tied up and this guy doesn't have an MDiv, right? Like we cannot listen to this guy preach. But then Jesus turns around and asks them a great question. In verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, like you're questioning my education, you guys have a law and it's not a very long law, right? It's not that long and you guys can't keep it, right? So this whole house, this whole place he's at is about keeping the law. And so we say, what part of this law that you love so much says, it's okay to kill me, right? And so uh, the, the crowd responds in verse 20. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Such an odd and deflective response. You're not, we're not crazy. You're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. What are you talking about? What? Nobody's trying to kill you. And yet Jesus knows exactly, you know, what they're planning to do in his hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. And he answers them in verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So he calls them out. Now what I love here is that like this is enough. Like People get it. And this is where the crowd starts to turn a little bit, right? People, it's clicking. They're starting to get it. In verses 25 and 26, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. How can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And in verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so two things here. One, people are believing, man. This is, this is exciting. Like this was a dark time and this is like the first like, light you see in a long time in John, right? So people are believing. And I think it's very interesting that this points out that the people who are believing say that they see that these Pharisees know that Jesus is the Messiah, right? They're calling it out. It's like, I think they know. And so they know that the Pharisees are against Jesus, but they also see the Pharisees, it looks like they even know that this is Jesus, which says a lot, right? About their motivation, their righteousness, what exactly their play is in all this. Why do they want to have him killed? And so the people are like, this doesn't make sense right? The way they act and what they say, just something's not lining up here. And they ask a great question in verse 31. How many signs are we waiting for? How could this not be Jesus? Like, how could this not be the Messiah? What else has to take place? Are you kidding me right now? We've seen what this guy has done. We've seen what this guy has says. We've seen how the religious leaders react to him. What else are we waiting for? Like, come on. Like, this has, this has to be it. And so the Pharisees hearing this. Um, I wasn't going to say they get triggered, but no, the Pharisees are, are perma-triggered, right? It's just they are always triggered, upset about something, and this does not help matters. And so um, now that they know where he is, they send officers to go, arrest this man." And so a couple of days passed, and he's not arrested. And now we land on the final day of the Feast of Booths, the final day, the climax of this festival. And so everything happens, right? That happens on the first six days, but on the seventh day, the priest would circle around the altar seven times, right? Seven times, number of perfection um, that represented uh, the battle of Jericho, right? So it's just super hyped up day seven of this event, and so the priest carrying the water was also met by another priest carrying wine at the same time. And again, the priest would ascend with the water to the high point point. and people would just cheer like higher, 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 raise it higher. Everybody must see this water of salvation. Hold it up, priest. Hold it up so everybody understands that God, you know, he gives us salvation. He provides life for us. And then the priest would, of course, pour out the water to end this festival. It is in this context of day seven that we read verse 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so this is the perfect timing that Jesus has been waiting for, right? Everything in this journey has been on this schedule, right? And so it doesn't tell us exactly when Jesus says this on this day, but the fact he's yelling out means that the crowd was there. So I, I believe, or I imagine at least, that he must have said this right before that water was poured out or maybe right afterwards, Right? After all, this whole ceremony pointed to the water of salvation, and he was present watching it. And so maybe if you've ever read the Old Testament, and you've wondered, why on earth am I reading about another festival, another another sacrificial system? Why do we keep learning about all this stuff? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. They all point to Jesus from the ark to, to the blood on the doorpost, the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock, the bread from heaven, as we read about in chapter 6. They all point to Jesus, right? Everything, everything that we learn points to Jesus and helps us understand something else about him. And with Israel, he set up the whole life of Israel. Everything about everything that they did was to get to know God and to point them to Jesus. So when that moment came, they would get it. Like, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. The same way around the world, so many different cultures and religions. It's so interesting that we'll have entire religions shift to Christianity. And in doing so, they'll say, yes, we believed in our religion but when we learned about Jesus, he completed it. Like that was what made it made sense. Our religion pointed to something and, and it was Jesus. And so that's what's supposed to happen with Israel here. And so we have the salvation of Jesus the Messiah, which is the gospel, right? The gospel. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me will wet. What? Drink living water, right? They'll drink living water that brings eternal life. This is the gospel. The miracle wasn't a rock that poured out water for a day. I'm sure that water tasted great, especially in the middle of the desert, but it was to point to Jesus whose blood would flow. And so in the rock in the wilderness, remember it's struck. Remember we read that the rock is struck violently. And then the water comes out. Well, that, that is to point to Christ who is going to be struck violently over and over and his blood is gonna pour out. And it's that blood of Christ that is the living water. Moreover, the person who believes it says will have a, a heart that flows you know, of living water. Like Living water flows out of their heart, which is evangelism. This is interesting here, right? He turns it around cuz now he's talking to Israel who who were supposed to be the evangelists of the world, right? To preach to the nations. And so he says like this water wasn't meant to just quench your thirst. This water was meant to come into you and overflow out of you. You just drank that water and then and then complained more. You were supposed to drink that water and then go and tell everybody, right? Maybe even go give some of that water to some of those neighboring nations right, who didn't like you guys, you know, probably because you guys were annoying. And so, but you didn't, that's not what you did. And so the heart of the one who believes in Jesus, it's not like a kiddie pool, right? It doesn't just fill up with water, right? You don't just get a store of living water and it, it just stays within you. But it's supposed to be a river that flows outward. And there's no need to hoard it, right? We've seen over and over It's going to keep coming. It, It doesn't run out. It's like give everything you have to Jesus. Share the gospel over and over, and tell me if you don't end up with more energy than you started with. If your praise and your worship isn't even greater than when you started to do that. So people, you know, they do need living. They need water to survive but they need living water, right? This living river to survive in the afterlife and in the age to come. I think I see this in Luke chapter 16. Really one of the the, the saddest, scariest parts of scripture for me, which is the rich man and Lazarus, as Jesus talks about them. And so they both end up dying and the rich man at some point sees Abraham and Lazarus and he says in, in chapter 16, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip end, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Man, and this should, I, I, like I said, I think it's sad, I think it's scary, but this should motivate us, right? We don't dislike anybody enough to wish this on anybody. Right? This is horrible. This should be our motivation to keep people from this unquenchable fire where they'll be crying out just for a fingertip of water. Not when we have like this eternal spring of Jesus, right? We have this living river. What are we doing? We have this to offer an endless, limitless river of life to offer people before they get to that moment where they have no opportunity at life, no opportunity any sort of water. But where does that come from? Where do we get that desire to share from? And so we see this in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, and and we've received that um, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so we have the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus, after this, he gets murdered, conquers the grave, comes back, goes to heaven, sends us the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, which is great because the first thing the Holy Spirit did was what? He pointed us to the water because we didn't know where it was. It was right in front of us, but the Holy Spirit said, here's the water you need. But from that point, we're also supposed to go out and give that water. It's supposed to flow out of us. The Holy Spirit didn't say, here, hold this. He said, here, go give this. Go offer this out. <clears throat> and so this, this should inspire us and in, empower us here in Bakersfield. You know, let this heat of Bakersfield remind us that people need not just water, but they need living water. You know, I love going out into into Bakersfield and walking around because it reminds me. I know I go to some areas that Some people may not like, but man, does it get me stirred up. Like people need this. People need this living water. And I hope that's your heart too, that we would share that. But what happens when we share? Well, let's look at the rest of the chapter. In verses 40 through 44, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but none laid hands on him. And so to answer the question, what happens when we talk about Jesus and we talk about his life and death and resurrection? What happens? How do people respond they divide, right? Always they divide. There is division. Some accept and some want Jesus arrested. Some are, some are gonna be excited. This is the prophet. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is what my soul is thirsted for. And others just, nah. You know, they're even gonna use scripture to deny Christ as what happens here. And which we've already seen happening with the Pharisees who knew scripture much better than I do or any of us do. Like they can quote the whole Old Testament on command. I mean, and all their extra laws. They were very good at it, but they chose that knowledge over God. They chose a knowledge of God over a relationship with God. One of the reasons they hated Jesus, and I think the crowd picks up on it here, is they realize that, the Jews realize that their monopoly is over, right? And we know for a fact, like their monopoly is over. Right, and so the crowd is like, oh, that's their play. They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their authority. They're going to kill God because they don't want to lose their power. And that's why it says they wanted Jesus arrested and nobody's arresting him. And so it's been almost seven days. They know where Jesus is. He's supposed to be arrested and he's not getting arrested. Why? In verses 45 and 46, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. <clears throat> and so it's interesting here, and it doesn't mention it in the Bible, but we do know this, that this time in Israel's history, in general, <clears throat> there's this anticipation, this palpable anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So much so that many actually said they were the Messiah. And so before this, people came and started war against Rome, saying they were the Messiah. And they got Jews to come into battle, to battle Rome, to overthrow it. And so if you've ever read, you know, the Gospels, it's like, why is there Roman officers everywhere? Because this is a thing. Like they understand, like the Roman soldiers and officers understand the the, the messianic uh, narrative. They've already stopped multiple Christs, multiple people who came and said this. And so they are ready. That's why they're always there working with the Jews to stop these things from happening. But then isn't it interesting here that these same people whose job it is, who are experts in stopping the coming of the Messiah, you know, they say, hmm, hmm. Have you guys actually listened to him? You know, they're talking to the Pharisees. You know, Pharisees, have you listened to this guy talk? I think this is the guy you're looking for, right? Like the officers are getting it. Like, are you sure you want us to stop this guy that I'm pretty sure you've been waiting for? And so they're not even arresting him. Jesus is winning over these officers. And we'll see this throughout um, the gospels, right? Where officers of Rome come to faith. And so the rest of the chapter, which we won't read every word, is the Pharisees, um, my summary, throwing a tantrum and calling everybody else ignorant. That, that's the rest of, of chapter seven. Just as when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, people are going to get offended. They're going to throw a tantrum. They're going to call us ignorant and then try to cancel us, right? So nothing new here. <clears throat> Yet we must endure. Church, we need to be like Lakes right? Like, not like, like, like rivers, like rivers, not, not little kiddie pools. We need to be rivers of, of living water, even if we don't know the results. You know, may, maybe, you know, as a church, maybe individually in our lives, you know, our evangelism looks more like uh, John chapter six, where everybody's leaving, right? It's like, it's not only are people not coming, people who were here are now leaving. And so we see that in our world today with ex-evangelicals, people leaving the church. And we can get depressed about that, but you, know, you also have to read chapter seven where there's the crowd who, who is screaming at Jesus. You have a demon who in the next breath are saying, this is the Christ, right? It's gonna click. You know, that, that's God's job to do that. Our job is just to present the gospel, to present that water to them. You just, you never know, you know whether it's a Roman officer, someone you would least expect to come to the faith will come. So don't get caught up on who's leaving. You know, let's pray, And let's share the gospel and get these people we never thought would come to come to the faith. I think this is especially true for those um, like myself who has family members who don't believe. And if you have family members who don't believe, don't get discouraged. Love them, be cool to them, share the gospel with them. Just don't stop because you never know. As an example, and as we get ready to go, I want to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, which is most likely somewhere between, I'd say four to six months after John chapter 7. And this is what it says. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't that interesting? This is like four or five months later. And so this chapter starts off talking about Jesus's brothers and sisters do not believe he is God. They are, they are not following Jesus. And yet here they are meeting and they're gonna start the church. How incredible was that? So don't be discouraged. You know, keep, keep praying for our family. We just don't know. In fact, one of Jesus's brothers uh, leads a very uh, uh, prominent church, right? All the, throughout his entire life leads this awesome church till he's martyred. You know, he writes several letters which just influence the church incredibly. This guy who didn't believe Jesus was God all of a sudden is dying for his faith. One of the letters he wrote becomes a book of the Bible, you know, with arguably the coolest title, right? Which is the book of James. Yes, I'm glad we agree on that. So church, I say that just to say, don't give up. Don't get frustrated. Don't fear rejection. Like preach this gospel of Jesus. We just don't know when the person's next breath is gonna be a completely different tune. And that's that power of this living water. But we have to present it. We have to offer it for people to accept it. So let our hearts overflow with rivers of living water. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.